Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Luke Hunt and today I have one of the great names in uh, journalism from across East Asia, from China to Australia and beyond, uh, Philip Bowering, who has a new book out entitled Empire of the Winds, The Global Role of Asia's, of Asia's Great Archipelago. And it, it's a hell of a read and it goes a long way back, pre-China, to the history of greater Southeast East Asia, back to the time of the Ice Age. And Philip, why don't you uh, start by giving us a roundup of how this book came about and the genesis of the whole project? Well, really, I you know, had two objectives when I started out you know, writing this book. One was that you know, I've been working in this part of the world for 45 years, and and I realized that uh, my own knowledge of the history before the late colonial period was pretty well non-existent. And then, you know, talking to people, I realized that actually uh, that was pretty widely the case, not just with foreigners like myself, but with uh, people from the region. They knew very little, often about, very little about anything before independence, after the Second World War, uh, and certainly very little indeed about uh, earlier centuries, uh, let alone you know two millennia ago. Right. So that was the first reason, and, and then the second reason was that, you know, in looking at this, I saw there was an identity in maritime uh, Southeast Asia, as is normally you know as it's normally referred to, uh, which was a specifically Austronesian identity, uh, and. It's the Austronesian identity of the archipelago and of the peninsula and uh, certainly of, formerly of some of the coasts, including Vietnam and, of course, the uh, uh, Taiwan originally as well. Um, so I wanted to give this uh, its own identity separate from this sort of overall term of uh, Southeast Asia, a term which was only invented in the 1940s anyway. Right. Um, and didn't seem to me to be more than a sort of a rather arbitrary chunk of geography. Um, whereas, you know, if I focused on the Austronesian region, um, then that did have an identity and it had a, a unifying factor apart from Austronesian language base, and that was uh, the maritime uh, economy. These were maritime peoples who, you know, from, from the very beginning... Uh, spread and traded um, through their command of the sea and of, of uh, sailing ships. So there was a unity there, which I think uh, wasn't properly recognised, um, either in academic or in, in uh, you know, broader uh, historical writing. Right. So I thought, well, if I combine these two things and keep it reasonably short, and you know, my book's only you know, 340 pages, which... Considering it, it starts with the melting of the ice after the last and climate ice. change <laughs> and, uh, and climate change and all the things that flow from that and uh, of course the first thing that flowed from climate change was uh, the winds uh, you know the yep. monsoon winds and um, northeast southwest winds which uh, uh, determine a lot of the history of the region and secondly it was uh, the other climate issues of rainfall patterns and so on which decided you know, where, which places were going to be most settled uh, right. and how the population was going to be distributed. So, you know, you start from that and then you, you move through. And, uh, you know, I moved through as rapidly as possible, mm -hmm. you know, 
through the different uh, uh, phases of uh, trading with the outside world, well, first of all, with themselves, and then with the outside world, uh, you know, starting around about the year you know, zero in, in, in you know, current era terms. Um, and I, I quite like the predating of that and the melting of the Ice Age and how sea levels were a lot lower mm-hmm. and this allowed for greater migration and you're talking about uh, migration patterns from uh, from what we know as Southeast Asia now but stretching out to Easter Island and right across to Madagascar in the uh, Indian Ocean. I, I thought that was quite... Uh, and it was... It was a, the different sea levels that helped enable that. There were great, greater land masses. Well, it was not actually quite the case. I mean, what, what really happened was that uh, the f- rise in the sea levels created islands. Right. And as a result of these islands being created, you get the development of knowledge of the sea and how to sail on the sea. Right. So that's how people uh, spread around. That's how they spread, you know, the Australasians spread you know, all the way out across the uh, Pacific to Easter Island and, and New Zealand and, and Hawaii and, and Fiji and Tonga and so on. And in the other direction, you know, um, as far as Madagascar. Uh, so the, the whole sort of island uh, chain, in a sense, all the way from Easter Island to uh, Madagascar uh, was uh, settled by Austronesians sailing the, sailing the seas. Um, now that, of course, came quite a long time after um, Aborigines in Australia, for example, mm-hmm. arrived, and they arrived uh, not entirely overland, but they certainly would have arrived when the sea levels were much lower, and therefore, you know, the um, yep. the, the waters that they had to cross were very narrow. Uh, yep. But you see, that goes back thirty, forty thousand years. We're talking—I'm I'm talking about the end of the last ice age as right. being. Um, 8,000 years ago. Sure, but you also mentioned that there was that reference to Atlantis, which I quite found quite fascinating. I mean, I'm sure that's speculative, but coming from Plato, initially from the Egyptians mm. and the traders that spread out that far, and I, please correct me on my pronunciations, but was it Sundaland or Sunderland, uh, that greater area around what's now Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Malayu, uh, that was this kind of, well, I, I think by today's standards it would be a, a much smaller population and area, but in the back in the day it was quite something. Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the land mass, you know, uh, Java, Borneo, Sumatra were all joined to the mainland. Um, therefore, you know, what is now sea, a large you know, part of the South China Sea, or at least the... Uh, uh, western part, of the southwestern part of the South China Sea, uh, used to be land. So therefore, obviously, there were there were rivers there. There were people, you know, uh, mm-hmm. living there. And of course, we don't know very much about them, um, but uh, clearly, you know, they, they were there. And those people who uh, got to uh, Australia at an earlier age right. probably came through that uh, across there. Right. Uh, of course, we don't know exactly, but I mean, it's reasonable to assume that that is how uh, people spread yeah. uh, at that time. Now, well, later, when when the, you know after the flood, um, they got to spread by uh, by boats. Um, 
So, I mean, the, the idea that the, this Atlantis might lie in the you know, South China Sea is not entirely ridiculous, simply because the uh, simply because um, we know that this area must have been inhabited and and was uh, was drowned and right. you know there are I mean the flood you know we call them myths biblical flood myth but actually sure. it's not myth at all I mean there's lots of uh, uh, memories from other cultures. Uh, um, in, in the Middle East, in, 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 in Sri Lanka, and so on, of this great, great uh, mm -hmm. catastrophe of the waters rising up. Now, of course, the waters didn't necessarily rise up you know, from one day to the next. But it wasn't quite Moses. Well, no, but I mean, probably there were bursts right. where you know, various things might have collapsed, causing you know, tsunamis and so on. And, but you know, over time, I mean, you've had a huge uh, movement. I mean, from you know, between say twenty-two thousand years ago and now, I mean, well, seventy-seven thousand, the sea uh, rose by one hundred and forty meters. I mean, that's an awful lot of. Uh, yeah, indeed. And it, uh, uh, having spent some time in the Pacific Islands and the way they see uh, distances and the way they travel. Mm. Uh, from one island mm, to the yeah. other and the way they mm. taste the water yeah. and travel in canoes and uh, you, yeah. you'd see where uh, back in the day, yeah. back in those times there was a lot less distance to cover but uh, it was a it was a different world um, but following that on from that came the great Indians uh, the Indian traders the Indian seafarers all people from that part of the world who really established themselves uh, long before the Chinese well the Chi not quite but well, uh, yeah, let, let's go back in time a bit. Sure. I mean, uh, there's no doubt that Indian traders uh, brought uh, Hindu and Buddhist ideas to the islands and coasts of, of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, sometime, you know, after about the year zero in, in current terms. Um, and you, know, you saw the gradual establishment of small states, right. Hunan, which was you know, in, in Cambodia, yep. um, and others you know, gradually emerged, but you know, some other kind of uh, foundation histories, all you know, essentially Indian in origin, but these peoples and you know, their kings and so on continued to speak Austronesian languages. So yes, there was this Indian cultural influence was very strong from these traders, um, but it uh, it didn't overwhelm the local culture. Okay. Um, I, I did notice in the book how you mention, and this is evident uh, to this day, how uh, the Indian caste system never really um, uh, ne never really took off in a lot of these other countries where other aspects, particularly of uh, Hinduism uh, it, it did yeah well I mean uh, of course Buddhism was for a long time at least as strong as Hinduism in, in, right. in this region um, uh, so uh, that, that's not really surprising I mean you know, the, the Indian influence was very much there but it wasn't completely dominant um, and obviously the whole of Austronesia um, had then and still maintains a, a, an equality of sexes in, 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 that is 
perhaps uh, seen as alien to uh, certainly to China and uh, and to some mm -hmm. extent uh, India as well. well. Certainly in India yeah. to this day, the yeah. trouble with women yeah. simply going to work, where uh, that's not an issue in well, countries like no. Cambodia or Thailand or Laos and Vietnam. Uh, no, well, it's certainly. I mean, if you look at the you know uh, gender imbalances in Asia, you don't find them in in uh, Austronesian uh, lands or indeed uh, Southeast Asia generally. So right. there, there, there is a cultural difference, and uh, which extends both you know to the mainland and and the archipelago. Um, but uh, just going back, I mean the the. The first great trading nation was, of course, you know, based in Java, Srivijaya, and you know, Srivijaya developed, you know, the trade system um, throughout the South China Sea and Java Sea. What centuries are we looking at here? Uh, we're looking well; the, it was at its, you know, prime in, in uh, uh, six, seven centuries. Right. Yeah, and then you know, it, it was. Uh, Linkage with Java, mm -hmm. uh, and then you have you know the rise of Javanese power, um, and that's the era of building of great uh, temples, Borobudur, uh, and, and so on. Um, so there was you know there was several hundred years of dominance uh, by Sumatra, you know by the states of Java and, and Sumatra of uh, regional trade. Including with China, of course, mm -hmm. um, China and and India. Um, so you know the, the the populations of these places were quite small, but you know they were very strong in terms of uh, their uh, trading and shipping capabilities. And of course, they provided provided the links, which uh, going back a little bit earlier from the Roman Empire across to India, then. Through, I'm going to pronounce it wrong again. Uh, Nusa. Nusantaria, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Nusantaria was the link between uh, uh, China and India and places further, further west. And uh, um, you know, because of its capability of shipping and its uh, position at the junction of the wind systems. Right. So uh, you know, it had the both the uh, uh, natural advantage and the technological advantage. Now, the technological advantage didn't, you know, remain forever, of course. And uh, you know, by the you know 11th century, you find uh, you know, the Arabs, of course, have become very important in the China trade. The Tamils, mm -hmm. and of course, the Tamils, uh, you know, occupied Kedah for quite a while. So right. I mean, you know, they. Uh, again, brought a, another Indian uh, influence. And the Khmer but, Empire was starting to exert itself a, a little bit later. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's things happening on the, on the mainland as well. But uh, as I say, this is really looking mainly at the uh, archipelago and, you know, yeah. some of the coasts, and, and, and obviously the coast of the peninsula um, was where it, a lot of things came together because, first of all, I mean, even before you had people sailing the Straits of Malacca, mm -hmm. you had a land bridge between uh, across the Kra Isthmus, so boats would arrive on the, uh, uh, say, from you know from Funan or from China mm -hmm. um, on the uh, east coast of the peninsula, and then there'd be a land you know passage 
uh, across to the other side, and then more uh, other ships would take you on to India or wherever it might be. Right. Uh, so, I mean, that system existed really before the Malacca Straits developed right. as, as a route. But once once that developed as a route, obviously the uh, uh, states on the east coast became more important by and large than those on the west. Um, but so, most of the time, I mean, the major ports were, in fact, on, on, on Sumatra. Right. And, and, and as you were saying, Java, and we had the, the series, correct me if I'm wrong, but the series of empires that, uh, well, empires of their day, uh, that had kind of sprung out as, uh, of that region, which, uh, of which there is very little evidence well, I mean, Srivijaya is not much evidence. Of course, uh, later, Majapahit and so on, there's plenty of evidence. Of, right. You know. um, and, of course, that had the advantage, I mean, there's another aspect of this. I mean, mm -hmm. we talk about, you know, trade between China and India and so on, the Arab world passing through this, this region, uh, through the straits and, you know, the dominance of those who control the straits. Right. Uh, the other aspect, of course, was the spice trade. Indeed. Uh, because the winds also help that, you see, because you have a, you know, a seasonal wind shift. Yeah. So you go east, you know, one time of year and west the other. And, uh, you know, what is the meeting point? It is, again, the meeting point is is Java or, you know, uh, uh, East Sumatra. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's... Uh, um, and what the, the goods they had to trade was also uh, uh, from sandalwood in Timor to... Uh, you give opium and heroin gets a well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, heroin, yeah, heroin, of course, doesn't come in until the end of the 19th century. Yeah, but, but I, there was a, there was you, a there was a reference in there from one of the traders how if it wasn't for women and fashion, uh, there'd be a lot less trade. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I think that that goes back to the, that goes back to Roman times, of course, because right. the Romans, uh, uh, Roman emperors were well, others were complaining about the loss of. Uh, Currency, because mm -hmm. uh, Romans were having to trade their silver for, you know, for uh, luxuries from India and China and, and, um, and so aristocratic so, women were obtaining no, right, slaves yeah, from so, Africa so, and yeah, I mean, uh, and of course, you know, talking about Africa, um, I mean, it was probably during the Sri Rajayan era of dominance that uh, the major settlements of, of uh, Madagascar were made. Right. Now, we don't, again, we don't know a great deal about when this happened, but we do know, of course, that the language of Madagascar to this day actually um, is more closely linked to Borneo than anywhere else. Though right. um, so it, it's probably more likely that the um, initiative behind these came not from those people themselves, but from, you know, uh, the Javanese or Sumatran rulers, uh, but I mean again, it's yeah. The, those details are yeah, have yet to be yeah, settled. Well, the, yeah. the important thing is that the, you know they had um, in Sumatra, in Java, these these uh, uh, trading empires had the capacity, you know, to cross you know the Indian Ocean in uh, with quite large ships. And of course, this was at a, it was at a time when China was looking inward, and 
I mean, it was trading and it was receiving goods and it was bankrolling, I suspect, for want of a better term. I don't think so. The I trade. No, I don't think so. I don't mm. think they were bankrolling it. I mean, I well, just, you make I a point in there about how uh, I think that uh, yeah, China was a backbone of the trade and people getting goods to oh. China, particularly silk and other goods, which was a currency in its day. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly China was very important both as a uh, market and as a source. Cause, right. You know, China wanted a lot of you know forest products and, and luxuries too, from mm -hmm. you know um, sources shell and things like that, um, as well as providing you know uh, silk and other you know products, uh, luxury products, um, to people in the south and in, in the west. Uh, but a probably a bigger trade in terms of textiles was Indian textiles. Cotton. Cotton textiles. Yeah, it was huge. Um, in fact, was, in volume terms, it probably was vastly bigger than the silk trade. Okay. Uh, because silk is, you know, precious good and, and was cotton fabrics were, uh, com you know, for common use. And, uh, no, it's more comfortable a, to wear. Yeah, and India was, <laughs> India was a yeah, uh, producer of all kinds of cotton goods. And, you know, so yeah. Uh, and that trade continued really up until the 19th century. Right. Yeah. Uh, how, when, it is a fascinating read for, from an outsider's perspective like myself, particularly because you do take it back uh, so much further than what we generally know, and particularly the books that we do read about Southeast Asia. How would you like, if, for argument, if this was introduced into uh, universities where I think it should be, um, how would you like to see this book impact on the way people think, their, the, the, how they frame this part of the world in their thinking, uh, given that most of the history does go back colonial days and then people know quite a bit about the empires, oh, the Khmer's, and not just them, obviously, but uh, the different empires that have perhaps happened over the last thousand years. This goes back so much further. How, how do we put that in a framework? in terms of people's thinking about the region. And this goes to uh, uh, the interpretations of national identity from the South China Sea or the Spice Sea, as you mentioned. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's an enormous topic that you've taken on. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was deliberate. I mean, as I, as I said, this was, mm. you know, A, because people didn't know very much, and B, because uh, this... Region has an identity, you know, maritime identity, which is, you know, um, not only of its own, but shows the, you know, how mm -hmm. trade um, has been the driving force for you know, everything in this region. Right. This is not the case if you go to the, you know, to the main mainland states. Mm -hmm. the trade was never, you know, a big driver of anything in China. Right. Yeah? Uh, or India, for that matter, mm -hmm. although, you know, there were parts of India, particularly, you know, uh, in the south. Sure, Pondicherry and Yeah, you know, where, where trade, you know, foreign trade was important. And, and, and uh, uh, but by and large, that wasn't, you know, these were land, you know, yep. uh, land-based states. And uh, whereas, you know, in, in the maritime region, they were, you know, to a very considerable extent, if not entirely, you know, maritime states, they certainly uh, needed uh, maritime capacity, if only to communicate among themselves. So, uh, um, so I think it, it's an attempt to get that recognised uh, right. in in the broader historical context. Mm -hmm. Now, 
you know, obviously, you know, in in the process, I mean, you get, you know, after you've got Hindu and Buddhist influence, then you get Islam. Sure. But interesting in the case, I mean, people tend to think that Islam came from, you know, uh, Arab and, and uh, Persian traders. Well, there were some, but most of the influence seems to have come from Gujarati Muslims from India. Okay. Not, not, not correctly from, from Arabia. Right. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that the build-up of, of Islam was a very uh, gradual process, mm -hmm. which really only sort of took off rapidly um, with uh, the rise of Malacca, and then, curiously enough, because of the fall of Malacca, which resulted in a lot of uh, Muslim merchants being dispersed mm -hmm. uh, to further, you know, to parts further, further east. And, and given uh, given that they came from Gujarat. Does that help explain why the different uh, the different forms of Islam or how it's grafted itself to local culture around the region seems to be a far more moderate or certainly a different form to say uh, Saudi Islam or to what is known today as Saudi Islam or Sharia is actually quite recent, but it's certainly not uh, when you compare it with what comes out of the Middle East. It's uh, it's not in the same fundamentalist kind of uh, League? Well, I mean, no. I don't think we have to assume that, you know, Islam um, was ever just what, you know, the Saudis said it was. And uh, sure. you had this huge Sufi influence throughout, mm -hmm. you know, Indian uh, Islam. And a lot of that was uh, transmitted to, uh, to uh, this part of the world. Right. So, um, so I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a great surprise. And in fact, you know, if you look at some of the uh, comments early on, in fact, in the, uh, you know, but, or even through uh, the Dutch period in in, uh, in Indonesia, mm -hmm. um, you know, the perception that the Arabs were all rather fanatic compared with you know um, local Muslims who right. had a better sort of sense of uh, of their own identity and they didn't need to be forever told, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to follow laws that uh, uh, were really only appropriate perhaps for, for you know, uh, conditions in, uh, in what is now Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you still find this uh, today. I mean, you know, you've had this surge of uh, um, uh, Saudi influence. In the last you know, 20 years. Yeah, in the last yeah. 20, 30 years, based on the fact they've got all this, all this money and it's had an impact, uh, particularly in Indonesia, where you see you know, so many uh, new mosques being built in, in, in uh, all over, you know, central Java mm -hmm. and elsewhere, uh, which uh, all over central Java and elsewhere, which owe their um, style yep. um, to the Middle East, not to uh, traditional you know, mosque styles of, of, of Java. Right. Uh, for, I mean. They, that's that's just a physical example of what is also happening in in terms of uh, the attempt of, uh, uh, of you know the Wahhabi um, right. state to you know to what it, you know to in its view cleanse Islam um, mm -hmm. by you know going back to the earliest sort of tenets or the earliest tenets as interpreted. Um, uh, by Wahhabists, which is, of course, a different matter altogether. Because, right. you know, as we know, I mean, all these religions are subject to uh, 
Indeed, you mentioned a few religions in the book that uh, one or two that uh, completely disappeared. Well, yes, I mean that's uh, you know religions do come and go. I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, you know, Islam's been around for less than two thousand years, which is really not very much, and Christianity for just two thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, Judaism for a bit longer, but perhaps you know, four, five. <laughs> uh, you know, we. Uh, and your book does go back much further yeah, well, than that. Well, yeah, so, you know, uh, I don't think, uh, uh, you know, I suppose it is one of the issues in, in this region now that you have uh, in basically two imported religions, um, both sort of rivals from uh, the Middle East, right. Islam and Christianity. Um, you see, and neither of them actually has its origin. And then a lot of uh, anywhere near here. So yeah, uh, I suppose you could say that there is some sort of underlying uh, conflict uh, mm -hmm. between the uh, like cultural imperial. background right. of you know the Austronesian people of the maritime region and the religions which have come either as a result of foreign conquest or as a result of, you know, other foreign influence. Um, so uh, where that leads in the future, we don't know. I mean, I, and I think, uh, you know, as I've, I think, explained later in the book, right at the end, that, uh, you know, coming to the, today, what is going to, you know, how are we going to see the future, mm -hmm. that uh, um, any state... In the region, which focuses on its uh, on its religious identity rather than its identity as part of this uh, nusantaria, um, is not going to help. That uh, states need to be focused on what they have in common, not uh, the differences of religion which have come from the outside. And on that note. Um I'd just like to say, Philip, uh, Empire of the Winds is a terrific read. Uh, I'm scratching my head at the moment. It will reshape your thinking about uh, about what we know as Southeast Asia. It's a terrific read, and I just thoroughly urge, uh, if, if you've ever studied this part of the world, go out and buy it. Philip Dowring, thank you very much. Thank you.